It is, uh, it's great to see you here. It's great to be back. As I said, my name's Dave. Um, we've just had a lovely two-week holiday, which has been fantastic. Uh, I had a chance to get up to Sydney and then a chance to go up to Cairns, catch up with the Adcocks, who some of you know, uh, and spend a week up there. So feeling uh, refreshed and revitalised and renewed. I hope you are too. We've been in a series on the book of Second Timothy, um, which is Paul writing to his young apprentice as Paul nears the end of his life and is basically giving him that charge to finish well. And uh, today we come to the final message in this uh, sermon series. It's been good. Who's been blessed by Second Timothy? Praise God. Um, I know I have been and... Uh, Yeah, God's going to do some good things. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that um, your word is a two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray as we gather now to listen, to hear, uh, to genuinely receive from you. We pray that you would speak, that you would speak boldly. And God, we just pray that, yeah, your word wouldn't return void, that it would do what you said it would do and that it would touch our lives and change our lives and make an impact that's lasting. And so we thank you, Father. We just ask as this old man on his, on his uh, in, in a prison cell, effectively on death row, charges this young fella to run the race well, that we would catch that charge and we would go and do likewise. So we love you, Lord. We praise you, commit this to you in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. As I've been uh, thinking about this message, uh, this particular word, it's one of those ones that's so rich, like there's so much in it, and thinking a lot about how do you preach these 13 verses in one sermon. Um, And I, I was thinking about Christmas lunch, and how you go to Christmas lunch. For me, I've got these beautiful fond memories of joining with a the, the Shepherd Extended Clan back in the day. My grandma, Shepherd, she passed away a long, long, long time ago when I was very young. But I have these faint uh, but yet uh, powerful memory of you'd have Christmas lunch and you'd be filled to the brim with good food, like good meat and roast veggies, you know, all the good stuff. And then what would happen in the Shepherd households was ice cream would come out. Uh, who loves a bit of ice cream? We love a bit of ice cream. And there was always just plain vanilla because that was always the shepherd favourite, but then there'd be chocolate and other things for the kids and all the adults would take the vanilla and apple pies and all these incredible things. And you get to the end of that and you think, I am stuffed. I've got nothing else that I can possibly consume. The high point of the meal is done. It's finished. Now all we're going to do is lie on the couch and then in half an hour's time, get up, go to the fridge and eat some leftovers. Whose Christmas lunch is like that? Yeah? Yeah? And it's easy when we we get to uh, these letters of Paul and you get to what is, you know, the personal remarks, the final thoughts, the the greetings to other people. It's it's really easy to think, do you know what? I've had my fill. We've hit the high point. It's been great. Thanks, Paul. Uh, But I don't really feel like leftovers, so I'm just going to skip over that and go to the next letter. But what I want to tell you is that actually after the meal is something even better. Because in the shepherd tradition, when you finished ice cream, yeah, you'd sit for a little bit, but you wouldn't go straight to the leftovers. What would happen is grandma would pull out these incredible things called after-dinner mints. 
Does anyone know an after dinner mint? And to my absolute uh, disgust, the after dinner mints we used to have were the, um, the red tulip ones. Like they were like paper thin, dark chocolate, and they came in their own little package that you would undo and then you'd like put it in your mouth and you'd just bite or just like, you know, stretch away. It was so, so good. Always the highlight. And I can't find them anymore. So I went to Woolworths and I found these guys, which they're not red tulip, but they're still an after dinner mint. And they're still good. There's something about just the peppermint. It's better with dark chocolate, I'm going to tell you. But there's something about an after-dinner mint which just tops the meal off. Who wants one, by the way? Do you want one? Cam, you're going to want a couple. <laughs> no, I'll try not to make that sweet. You're not taking all of them. Settle down. Anyone else want one? Yeah, come on. Let's just pass them back. Here. You can take the packet. I don't need any more. I'm supposed to be sugar-free. Oh, I didn't see you, Laura, over there. I apologise. Someone send them that way. Wow, it's really hard to talk with an after-dinner in your mouth. There's something really special about an after-dinner mint. And um, I've titled this sermon, The After-Dinner Mint. Because I think that when we get to these closing remarks of, uh, of Paul to Timothy, this isn't leftovers. Like, this is not leftovers. This is the after-dinner mint. This is... I think, the high point of this whole letter. This is like, what we're about to look at is something that you need to just savour, that you need to sit with slowly, that you need to go home after this and you need to go to verse 9 and you need to just allow all week this to just rinse over you. Like, don't, no one grabs an after-dinner and just shoves it in their mouth and chews it and then moves on to another one. No, you sit there, and the red tulip, you open, and you pull it apart, and you just nibble on the edge, and then you let it sit there in your mouth for a while, and then you go again, amen? This is what we need to do with this passage of Scripture, because there is something so uniquely special about Paul's last, final paragraphs that he will ever write. Because shortly after he writes these words, and it might be a matter of weeks, it might be a matter of months, we don't know historically, but we do know that very soon after writing these words, the Romans cart him off and sever his head. And this great, mighty, incredible man of God becomes a martyr for the faith. And I want you to know that when someone is in a position in their life, when it's all coming to an end, when you know you don't have much time, and you see this in movies and television shows all the time, when they feel like they're about to die, no one is just fluffing about, are they? That's the moment where they're holding hands and everyone's confessing their, you know, their last secrets that they wish that they'd let go years and years ago. And so in this moment, these last few verses, this is Paul, this is everything that he is summing up his letter, it's everything that he wishes Timothy would know. He's like, here you go, Timothy, bam. This is the after dinner mint. So with that in mind, turn to the word of God, to the second 
letter to Timothy, the fourth chapter, and we're going to read from verse 9 through 22. And we're going to glean as much wisdom as we can. It says this, Do your best to come to me soon. Paul writing to Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark... And bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. So when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. And the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself though, for he strongly opposed our message. Now, at my first defense, Timothy, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left uh, Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greeting to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit, and grace be with you. As we look at this, there is so much gold in this. I want you to like Paul is just dropping gold after gold after gold. And so this sermon's going to look a little different. Uh, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put it into three categories. And so if you're a note taker today, you can put a title, which is the after dinner mint. And then there's going to be three categories we're going to look at. Those are some things we need, some warnings to heed, and some treasures to seed. Some things we need, some warnings to heed, and some treasures to seed deep down inside of our hearts that can grow and develop and, uh, and reap a great harvest. Does that sound good? Cool. So things we need, verse 9 to 11. Things we need, verse 9 to 11. It starts like this. Do your best to come to me, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in my ministry. The first thing that you need, and we have hit this over and over and over again, is a companion. If you are to finish well, which is Paul's major emphasis of this letter to Timothy, that I want you, Timothy, to take the torch and not get distracted and not walk away from the faith, but fulfill your calling and finish well, the first thing that you need is a friend. You need a friend in the ministry. Now, I know that you have a thousand friends on Facebook. And I know that you have 500 followers on Instagram, but that's not the type of friend I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is a friend who is with you and genuinely invested in your life. We all need a friend. Paul, 10 years before this event happened, 10 years before he's now rotting in a cell in a dungeon in Rome, in the cold, 
writing with only Luke with him, 10 years before this, when Paul had been uh, arrested and had been bound and he was being uh, taken a procession into Rome. Do you know what happened 10 years ago? 10 years ago, about 100 kilometers out of Rome, he had a bunch of people from the church of Rome join him with the soldiers to walk in solidarity as he went into Rome. And then they got to about 40 kilometers out and more and more and more Christians started to gather around Paul and walk with him as he was walking bound in chains. And when Paul walked into Rome 10 years before to begin this imprisonment, He walked in with a room full of followers and friends, people being like, yeah, we're with you, Paul. But I want you to understand that over the course of 10 years of rotting in a dungeon, seeing all this other stuff going on in the world, all this other church stuff, all of a sudden, 10 years on, the world's forgotten Paul. And Paul's lonely. He says, everyone has abandoned me. Where are they now? Where's those thousand Facebook followers now? Where's the, uh, where's the fans? Where's the crowd which was with me and championing me? Where are they now that things are no longer pretty? That things are no longer uh, glamorous and interesting but boring and difficult? Everyone has deserted Paul and he is so lonely. All he has is Luke and so he writes this this word to this young son, Timothy, and he says, come to me quickly. And what he's saying, he's writing out, he's saying, do you know what? I need a friend right now. I need someone who's gonna come to me. And so bring Mark, he's saying, bring people who I, who I know actually, like I can trust, who I know are in it and who are genuinely engaged and invested in my life. And I wanna ask you yet again, as we approach the last message of this series of who are you walking with? Who are you walking with? Who's your friend? Who's your real friend? Who's the person who's with you in the trial? Who's the person who's going to laugh with you but also cry with you when you need to cry? Who's the person who's going to encourage you and build you up but actually not be afraid to give you a word of caution when you need a word of caution? Who's not going to be afraid to actually rebuke you when you need a rebuke but to do it with gentleness and love and genuine investment? Who are you walking with? Are you walking with anyone like that? And it might be that actually you're at a season in your life when you need to stop chasing after fans and crowds and start simply investing in one, two, or three friends. Are you with me? What do we see in Jesus' life? We see the three, the 12, the 72, and the masses. And when he was in his greatest hour of need and he took them to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, did he take the masses with him? No, he took the three. Peter, James, and John. You see, if even Jesus needs a friend, you need a friend. You need companionship. You need someone who's going to do the journey with you and you need to be able to be bold and brave and ask that question and simply be prepared to be that friend for others too. Who are you walking with? The second thing that we need, so we need companionship, the second thing that you actually need in order to finish well is commitment. You need commitment. It says that 
Demas, who for the love of this present age has deserted me. Can you just think about this for a second, friends? Here's Paul, this mighty man of God, this incredible apostle, in his hour of need, and Demas, this young fella who's been a great ministry companion, and you see that through the book of Acts, and Philemon, or Philemon, however you want to pronounce that, and you see that he's been there with him, and all of a sudden, in Paul's hour of need, for the love of this present age, Demas has gone off to Thessalonica. Now, history suggests that Thessalonica is probably home for Demas, okay? There was nothing necessarily major happening over in Thessalonica. There's no great move of God that we know about. All we know is that it's probably home. And so Demas, in Paul's greatest hour of need, when the poo is hitting the proverbial fan and stuff's looking really, really bad, Demas goes home. That Demas chooses comfort over commitment. And here's what Paul's saying. If you want to finish well, if you're going to be someone who's going to run the race and make a difference in this world, you actually need to grow a spirit of commitment that you need to be prepared to put your nose to the grindstone and actually just see some stuff through. Yeah? And we need to be committed to humble service sometimes. All right, I'm going to speak just really quickly to my generation and below. You see, we are growing up in an age where we are, we are drawn to the attractional. When something's bigger, brighter, better, more attractive, we go, well, this isn't as good. The pasture's greener over there, so I'm going to go there. And then we stay there for a little bit, and then something else pops up that's bigger, better, brighter, you know, more my style, and so we run over there. And we see it even with friends, where this friend understands me, and they get me, and this friend doesn't. They're hard work. So what do we do? We leave them, we abandon them, and we run over here. This is not how we finish well. The way we finish well is we learn from the generations that have gone before us, and we start to recognize that maybe I'm actually called to grow where I'm planted, that I need to invest where God has put me. Do you know what? Younger people in this congregation, I'm including me at 36, we, we might think that the way that we're doing church right now, maybe we wish the music was actually louder. Maybe we wish that there was more lights and more production and more of this and more of that because that's more my style. But let me tell you, there's a bunch of people in this church who actually wish the music was quieter and they actually wish that there was less production and that there wasn't so many people because they just love the small church. I want to tell you that we can learn from that because yet they're still serving friends. Do you know what? We've got... We've got people aged from 60 to 70 lifting chairs and moving tables and getting here at 7.30 in the morning to set up while younger people are sipping coffee. I'm coming right to your front door this morning. And I'm knocking on it. Maybe it's time to stop thinking about me and my comfort and what I want and start saying, God, where are you calling me and what can I do? What do I need to commit to? And see through. And sometimes God will call you out. You see, Paul doesn't rebuke the next two guys on the list. He actually sent them off to ministry. He actually said they were committed to that. And a time came where he said, now it's time to go. 
And you get the impression that they actually left uh, broken, that they wanted to be with Paul. They wanted to sit with Paul, but God had other work for them. And that day might come, but how do you know if you're not listening and committed and not chasing the bright lights, chasing the next big thing, but actually invested in the kingdom where God has planted you? Amen. You are awfully quiet. Maybe I haven't been around for a couple of weeks, but you've got to get used to start talking to me again. Here's the second thing that we need to be committed to. We need to be committed to learning. Watch this. This is the most, I think, the most extraordinary thing that we can possibly see in this letter. Paul, remember, is weeks away from being beheaded. beheaded. Paul, who wrote an extraordinary chunk of the New Testament. Paul, this incredibly wise, um, amazing orator and man of God who could argue the, the brightest religious person under the table. And it says, it says in, let's get there if I can find it in here. He sends him off, Luke alone is with me. Tychicus said to Ephesus, when you come bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and also the books and above all the parchments. Paul, weeks from his death, still wants the Word of God. He still wants to study. He still wants to read. He still wants to just be wrapped up in who God is. Even then, Paul's devoted to study. How are we going with our commitment to the Word? The only way that we grow is through commitment. I see this all the time, even in, like, in the gym, right? We have people come to the gym and they're so keen. They're so fired up for a week. You know, like we're going to do lunch. They're like, woo, lunges, yeah, let's lunch. Come on, woo. And they're so on fire and they're so keen to lunge and to lift weights. And two weeks later, they're not keen to get up at 5.45 in the morning anymore. And then they wonder why they don't grow. They wonder why they don't get stronger. They wonder why they're not empowered. And the reason is because there's no commitment. Because it's a flash in the pan. But if someone is prepared to just stick to it day after day after day and get in the grind, all of a sudden growth and development happens. And this is what we're called to in the Christian faith, to be committed to learning, to be committed to the Word of God. There is this beautiful saying which I love which says, not all readers lead, but all leaders read. Not all readers lead, but all leaders read. If you want to be someone who finishes well, if you want to be someone who makes an impact in this generation, then you've got to create a commitment to learning and growth. You need it. You need it. All right, let's go to the next one. So they're the things we need. Some warnings to heed. Some warnings to heed. Here's the first thing. We've got to guard what we've been given. Everyone say guard. Guard means to protect. Guard means to look after. We need to guard what we've been given. Guard that seed of faith. When Paul's writing to Timothy, he mentions this bloke called Alexander who caused him great harm. And then he goes on and he says, be wary of him. Like, be, be on your guard against him. We need to understand that in this life, there are, there are some things that we need to guard preciously. The Bible tells us uh, to guard our hearts for it's a wellspring of life. 
yeah? There are some things we actually need to look after and some things that we need to protect. And there are some things in this life that you are jumping into because of whatever reason, but it is not wise and it is not discerning in that moment. And to finish well, we actually need to be guarded. We actually need to protect certain things. Uh, Like some of us go running into lion's dens because we're like passionate about the gospel. When God hasn't called us to the lion den yet, he's called us to the commitment to learning and the commitment to change. Yeah? And if you go running into a lion's den, when God hasn't called you into a lion's den, the lions are going to eat you. And how many times have we seen that in the faith? I've got a great friend who, he, well, he was a great friend. He's, I, he sort of cut contact a long time ago. But I remember he was, he was passionate. He was like, I'm going, I'm going to ministry. I'm going to India. He was like, I'm called to India. And I remember as a group, as we were praying about this, we were like, I'm not sure that you are, man. I'm not, I'm not sure that you're ready for India. I think there's some stuff in your life that you need to sit with and you need to grow in before God calls you to that place. And he went running off to India. And he came back a year later, completely broken. And when he came back, then his wife was sort of broken. And then he decided, I'm going to the army. And then he went to the army and... Everything fell apart in his life because he ran to a place that God hadn't called him to because he didn't guard what he had been given. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't wise in what God had entrusted to him. And I want to encourage us today to be wise and be discerning and to guard what God has given us. Yeah? Guard what God has given us. And here's the second warning that we see. It's a warning against bitterness. This beautiful Warning against bitterness. Let's go back to the word. I want to show you something. Let's start in verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus Talmatia. Luke alone is with me. And he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in my ministry. Do you know, as you read the book of Acts, what you realize is that there was a time in Paul's life when he really didn't like Mark. Like him and Barnabas, who were missionary partners, they had a massive blue over Mark. Where Barnabas was like, you've got to give him another chance. You've got to give him another chance. And Paul's like, nah. He is, he is not good. He is not healthy for me in ministry. He is only going to cause harm. We're not taking him I don't want him. And Barnabas and Paul actually split because of it. Because of this huge blow up over Mark. Now Paul gets to the end of his days and he says, one of the three people that he wants with him, one of the three genuine friends in his great moment of need is Mark. Something has happened in Paul's life where instead of just writing this man off, and maybe it's a word of Barnabas to him, but he got to a point where he was able to forgive and step into the future. And what so often happens in our lives is that we can't forgive someone who's let us down or someone who's hurt us. These people do things to us, and maybe once they were trusted and they've broken us, they've hurt us, and forgiveness is not something we're prepared to give, so instead we start to pick up the baggage of bitterness... And do you know what? The world 
is way too messy for you to be carrying someone else's junk. We've all got enough junk to carry on our own. And if we can learn to live in forgiveness because Christ first forgave me, because anything that person's done to me never compares to what I have done to God. And yet God came for me. God gave his life. The person of Jesus Christ died on a cross to show that he loves us and that he would choose us and that he would forgive us. If he can do that for me, then surely I can forgive my brother and sister who has wronged me. And as we learn to live in forgiveness and not carry the baggage of bitterness, it may well be that that very person who wounded you is the person who you need in the later part of your greatest need. Let's not walk with the baggage of bitterness, but let's begin to walk in forgiveness. And then watch this. Go to verse 16. At my first offense, so Paul is... uh, He's been charged with whatever he's been charged with, probably high treason for preaching the gospel. And he's, he's at the imperial palace in Rome, probably testifying before Nero himself and as the emperor of Rome. And as he's, he's testifying, and he, these, all these Christians in Rome who could have come to his defense, as he's testifying and proclaiming his case, he says that no one, not one person came to his defense. And then he goes on and he says but may it not be charged against them. Who does that remind you of? Stephen. When Stephen is standing there getting stoned at the feet of Paul himself, Saul who became Paul, he says, may it not be charged against them. Who else does it remind you of? Jesus, who hanging on a cross at the hands of humanity says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. How, what a witness for finishing well. That this, he had every right to be ticked off, church. Every right. These are the people who were banging drums and cheering him on. We've got your back, Paul. We're with you in this trial. We're with you on this journey. We're going to be supporting you in Rome. Like, you're one of our leaders. We're for you. And then 10 years of a dungeon, they're all gone. When he needs them the most, they're all gone. And yet, this gracious man of God is able to say, may it not be charged against them. And so instead of Walking in that space in bitterness, he walks in that space in forgiveness, which enables him to continue to write this incredible letter to this incredible young man. The church goes forward. All right, we've got to keep moving. You all right? Okay, treasures to seed, treasures to seed. Here's what I want you to know. God's promise in your purpose is to bring you courage, not comfort. So God's promised you're born, you're created in Christ Jesus to do the good works, you have a purpose. God has made you with a purpose, but God's promise is to strengthen you and courage not to grant you comfort in order to fulfill it. If you read, let's go to Acts chapter 9. Go to Acts chapter 9. Verse 15. This is when when Saul's been, uh, had the encounter and he's, he's getting saved, uh, and Ananias, the Lord comes to Ananias 
and says, hey, you've got to go and pray for this guy, Saul, who's been persecuting the church uh, because he needs to know that I'm with him, that I'm for him. And Ananias is like, no way, man. I'm not going to do that because he's been persecuting the church. Why would I go and pray for a guy who's going to lock me up? And he just like advocated for the death of Stephen. I'm not so sure that I want to be that guy. And God's like, no, 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 this is why you have to go. And he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, so people who are not Jews, and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Do you reckon Paul, when Ananias first prayed for him, could ever have imagined that his prison would be the place where he fulfills his purpose. You see, because of this imprisonment, in Rome, Paul gets to state his claim on the steps of the imperial palace before the emperor, the ruler of the entire world, the Gentile world. And God said, your purpose is that you will proclaim the gospel before all the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And here he is, Because of his pain, because of his prison, because of everything that he's been through, now he has an opportunity to fulfill his purpose and proclaim the gospel to Nero himself. How much is that like God? And we are sitting here going, no, 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 but I want like, God, you're a good God, therefore I should be entirely comfortable all the time. Is not your will for me simply to be happy and healthy and well? Is that not why you have called me? He says, no, the reason I've called you is so that you would have eternal inheritance with me for uh, in glory with Christ on high, seated with Christ on high. That is why I've called you for an eternal hope and I've called you so that you would minister that hope to a lost, dying and broken world who also needs that hope that they would know that this is not all there is. And he will use whatever it takes in our lives to bring about that great hope, passion and zeal for the gospel and to fulfill his purpose and bring his name glory. And for Paul, it meant prison. And I wonder what it means for you. And the great promise of God is that he will give you courage in the midst of your discomfort to bring his name glory. And sometimes we're praying, Lord, give me this, give me this, give me comfort, when what we should be praying is, Lord, have your way. Bring your name glory. Bring your name glory. God is calling us and empowering us by his spirit, for courage, not comfort. Second thing, the second treasure that I want you to see deep in your heart, you are not alone. Paul says, everyone abandon me. I'm alone, except for Luke. And then he says this awesome thing where he says, but Christ stood by me. Christ stood by me and enabled me to proclaim the word. He's like, Christ stood by me and enabled me to fulfill the purpose for which he had called me. Christ stood by me. Do you know, the posture, Old Testament posture of standing is a prayerful stance. It's a, it's a posture of intercession. The sitting posture is the posture of authority. 
So when we say that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, it means that he has all authority. When he says that Christ is standing, what he's saying is that he is pleading with the Father on our behalf. He is our advocate. He is our champion. He is praying for the saints. You are not alone. You are not alone. God is with you. Jesus did not come and die on a cross and suffer at the hands of humanity to abandon you in your hour of need. You are not alone. Turn to the person next and say, you are not alone. You are not alone. He is with you. He is for you. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. He is walking with you. When he said, surely I am with you to the very end of the age, guess what? He meant, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. He did not mean, well, I might be around on occasion. He is with you. And whether it's your decisions or whether it's just the broken nature of the world that we live in, in whatever you're going through, you are not alone. Christ is with you. He is for you. He is walking with you. And the evidence of that is a cross. The evidence of his investment and engagement is a cross that splits time. He is with you. You are not alone. And Paul fulfills his purpose. So please don't ever allow your circumstance to allow the courage of your conviction to fade. When circumstances come to cut you down, when circumstances come to do what Demas did and draw you to comfort, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. See the Son of God bleeding for you and choose to stay. Here's the third thing. I'm going to get the band up. The third thing is this, it's that people matter. You know, you get to those last couple of verses and Paul's like, hey, say good day to this bloke, say good day to that lady. This person wants you to know that this person's going all right. This person's going well too. They send you their greetings. It's easy to skim over that, isn't it? Be like, what the heck? Like, I don't care about those people, Paul. I just want the meat. But do you know what I love about that? What Paul is saying to Timothy And can I speak to leaders in this place? If you are a leader, first and foremost, above everything else, you are a shepherd. And that means you care about people. Like, if ever there was a time for Paul to be about himself, it's now. This guy's about to be beheaded because of his faith. This guy has devoted his entire life to the cause of the gospel. This is a guy who has just given and given and given and given to the cause of Christ. And in his greatest hour of need, the church has completely abandoned him and said, we don't want anything to do with you because you are no longer cool and there is no longer uh, worth fighting for you. You are now a has-been, old, forgotten preacher. And yet... In this moment, what does Paul do? He's regarding and thinking about people. Because people matter. People matter. In all things, people matter. So love people. Cherish people. Look after people. 
care for the annoying person who keeps banging on your door and you wish they'd just shut up and go away. Jesus loves them. And if you're in Christ, you should love them too. It sure is quiet in this Baptist church this morning. People matter. People matter. Next one. I'm just dropping nuggets now. I don't have time, so I'm just dropping nuggets. Every day, take a moment to focus on forever. Every day, take a moment to focus on forever. Do you know, I was thinking about this the other day. So Paul sends Timothy to bring Mark and Luke's with him, right? So in a prison cell, in a prison cell, in a dark dungeon that's freezing cold, Paul with no jacket, church hasn't even been able to consider, no one's even thought about Paul and thought, gee, it's getting close to winter, let's bring this dude a jacket. He's got a right to Timothy to say, hey, can you go and get my jacket from 600 miles away? This incredible man of God, so alone. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I wonder if you've ever felt abandoned. I wonder if you've ever felt like God's given up on me, people have given up on me. I got no one. Gosh, no one's, the the prayer team didn't come. No one made me a meal. No one's knocking on my door to see how I'm going. I bet no one even knows my name. No one says g'day. And yet in this moment, Paul gathers Luke and he gathers Mark and Timothy to teach Timothy something. And in that cell is 66% of the New Testament. Luke, Mark, and Paul. 66% of the New Testament sitting in that cell and Timothy gets to watch and listen as what they do something with the books. And when you read these letters and you read their focus, there's a thing that a theme that keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. And this is the idea that every single day you need to think about forever. Eternity. And it's as if they're saying, do you know what? It's not about this present age. It's not about this moment. It's not about this life. Whether I live 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, this life is but a blink in the eternity that God is preparing for us. So fix your eyes on that, Timothy. Fix your eyes on that. Fix your eyes on that, mate. We're going to be gone soon, all of us. And you will carry the torch. You will carry the mandate of the gospel. You will carry these things forward. And the way that you will finish well, the way that you will survive, the way that you will get through is by, yeah, this, this, and this. But, mate, fix your eyes for just a moment every day on forever. Don't get so caught up in the present age, but know and believe that there are better things to come. that there is an eternal glory prepared for you and for all those who would call on the name of Christ. And then he finishes with one more nugget where he simply just says, grace be with you. And what a better way to finish a letter charging someone 
Like it's him, you know, saying, come on, Timothy, do it. But then he finishes with grace. He's saying, when you trip up and you make a mistake, God's with you. God's with you. Your merit, your favor, your acceptance, your witness, your capacity, the love of God is not dependent upon your work or your posture and standing of excellence in spiritual well-being. Your standing and acceptance in God is 100% determined by the blood of Jesus, by the grace of God. He chose you. You did not choose Him. When you stumble, He loves you. When you succeed, He loves you. When you stuff up, He loves you. When you're preaching to the masses, He loves you. When you lead someone to Christ, He loves you. When you totally neglect Christ, He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He is for you. He is not against you. He is with you. So go in the grace of God. And as we leave 2 Timothy, can that be the word to this church? In all things, go in grace. Go in grace. Go in grace. The Spirit of God is with you, empowering you to do the things He's calling you to do. But above all else, know who you are, that you are loved and accepted by an almighty God. And if that's Paul's final word he ever wrote, how fitting is it that this man who preached to the Gentiles, who stood in front of an emperor who would later sever his head and he proclaimed grace and acceptance and favour in God and that you would not fall from grace by trying to live your salvation through your effort, but actually you would simply receive grace by sitting at the foot of the cross and receiving Christ and saying, I know I am not worthy, yet you have made me worthy. Hallelujah! Go in grace. And if there is one nugget that you take with you from this whole series, may that be it. That in every charge, in everything God's calling us all to do with this great mandate to see the gospel go forward, you cannot fall out of the grip of His hand. He loves you. He loves you. Let's stand to our feet. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, Find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.